welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor, and here with me is my co-host, Derek. Hello. Today we will be exploring the sinking of PT-109 and the subsequent harrowing tale of survival afterward. Before we dive in, we must inform you, this story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel, death, Nazism, and discussion of wartime violence that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before we begin that neither Eleanor nor I are mariners or experts in the field of maritime history, but we have done our research and will present the information as we understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, we are going to be using historical record for as much of the sinking as we can. However, some of the information is only offered through witness testimony, so please take this with a grain of salt. Before we get started, We'll go over the basics of nautical terminology. The bow is the very front part of the ship, and the very back end of it is called the stern. The port side is the left, and the starboard side is the right. Propellers are sometimes referred to as screws. The hull is the metal sides of the ship. The keel is the very bottom of it. And the superstructure is the top deck, usually made of wood. Smokestacks, or funnels, are large tunnels on top of the ship used to direct steam and smoke away from the deck. Masts are large wooden poles on the deck of the ship, usually used to hoist sails or hold a crow's nest, where crew members can see for miles around the vessel. Beam is a measurement that refers to the width of the ship. Awesome, thank you. Our story takes place during one of the most infamous conflicts the world has ever known, World War II. World War II officially began September 1st, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland and would last six years and one day. During this worldwide conflict, more than 70 million military personnel and civilians would die on both sides, being the bloodiest conflict the world had ever seen at this point. Naval warfare was an important part of World War II, with some of the most well-known battles and tragedies during the war being at sea. Many types of boats and ships were used in these battles and skirmishes, from smaller and stealthier submarines to enormous aircraft carriers and destroyers. Of these watercraft, an important model for the United States Navy in the Pacific Theater was PT boats. PT boats, or patrol torpedo boats, were small gasoline-operated motor torpedo boats that were popular due to their speed, maneuverability, and inexpensiveness. However, there were major drawbacks. Due to ineffective torpedoes, limited armament, and a fragile construction, PT boats were primarily limited to coastal waters. During World War II, PT boats were used to engage enemy warships, transports, tankers, and bargers in the Pacific Theater. Hold on, Eleanor. What is the Pacific Theater? Great question. The Pacific Theater refers to the second primary location of most World War II conflicts. There are two main areas of conflict in World War II, the Pacific Theater and the European Theater. In both theaters, there was conflict on land, air, and sea. For today's episode, we will be firmly planted in the Pacific Theater, specifically the Blackett Strait in the Solomon Islands. The major players in this area were the United States Navy and the Japanese Imperial Navy. PT boats come in a few main designs, and PT-109 was of the largest, an 80-foot, 40-ton Elko-motor torpedo boat built in Bayonne, New Jersey. Her keel was laid on March 4, 1942, and she was launched on June 20th of that year. Her keel was made of two layers of one-inch thick mahogany and was incredibly sturdy and aerodynamic. 
After passing her sea trials, she was delivered to the United States Navy on July 10, 1942, to be fitted out in the New York Naval Shipyard in Brooklyn. She could be occupied by three officers and 14 enlisted naval men, with a typical PT boat crew being 12 and 14 men on average. PT-109 was powered by three 12-cylinder gasoline engines that packed 1,500 horsepower and could reach speeds of up to 41 knots. For her arraignment, PT-109's main offensive weaponry was her four 21-inch torpedo tubes containing Mark 8 torpedoes. This made the tiny boat deadly against enemy warships, even if they were heavily armored. However, there were issues with these torpedoes. Mark 8 torpedoes were highly ineffective and inaccurate until the Navy recalibrated its detonators at the end of the war, even if the torpedoes managed to hit their target with the accuracy issues. There was maybe a 50-50 chance that they would even detonate. Essentially, this made PT boats more of a nuisance than a threat in most cases. PT-109 also had a single 20mm anti-aircraft mount at the aft end of the boat two open circular rotating turrets mounting twin. 50 caliber anti-aircraft machine guns at opposite corners of the open cockpit and a smoke generator that were operated when engaging the enemy at closer ranges. These could be used offensively or defensively. The lieutenant who manned her last mission, who we will name later, bartered for a 37mm anti-tank gun that was mounted to the foredeck just before her last mission and ultimately went down with her. Wow, she sounds like she was armed to the teeth. PT-109's early career started when she was transported from the Norfolk Navy Yard to the South Pacific in August of 1942 aboard the SS Joseph Stanton, a Liberty ship. She was painted from her original navy gray to a flat dark green when she arrived in New Caledonia. She arrived in the Solomon Islands later in 1942 and was assigned to the Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 2 based on Tulagi Island. Between December 7, 1942 and February 2, 1943, PT-109 participated in combat operations around the Guadalcanal until the Japanese withdrew from Tulagi Island. Other than this, her career was uneventful before her sinking. Before we get into her sinking, we must meet her very important lieutenant. In Brookline, Massachusetts, on May 29, 1917, Joseph P. Kennedy and his wife, Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy, welcomed their second child, John F. John F. Kennedy. Yes, we are talking about the JFK that would later become the 35th President of the United States, and unfortunately our retelling of his life will be brief as we will be focusing on his time with PT-109. Before he would become a representative in the House of Representatives and later the President, he was a lieutenant in the Navy. JFK was consistently and tragically ill as a child, suffering from the rare autoimmune disorder Addison's disease, colitis, and developing osteoporosis as a young man. This didn't stop the spunky, vivacious, and debonair young man who was determined to make his father and family proud. Coming from an Irish Catholic background, Kennedy was at a social disadvantage despite his family's affluence and success. He didn't let this stop him either, attending both Princeton and Harvard before the onset of World War II. He planned on continuing his already vast education at Yale's Law School but canceled when the United States entry into World War II seemed inevitable. His older brother, the eldest of the Kennedy children, Joseph Kennedy Jr., was originally the apple of his father's eye and was destined to be Kennedy to take to the Oval Office. However, he enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve on June 24, 1941. 
and entered flight training to be a naval aviator. This spurred his younger brother, John F. Kennedy, to also enter the U.S. Naval Reserve, though due to his poor bill of health, his father would have to pull a few strings to shoo him in. John F. Kennedy enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve on September 24, 1941, and was commissioned an ensign, or the junior rank of a commissioned officer, on October 26, 1941. After attending the U.S. Naval Officer Training School at Northwestern University in Chicago from July 27th to September 27th of 1942, he voluntarily entered the Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron's training center in Melville, Rhode Island. On October 10th of that year, he was promoted to Lieutenant Junior Grade. Kennedy completed his training on December 2nd and was assigned to Motor Torpedo Squadron 4. The first torpedo boat to be commanded by John F. Kennedy was PT-101 from December 7, 1942 until February 23, 1943. In April of 1943, he would be reassigned to Motor Torpedo Squadron 2 on April 24th, and he took command of PT-109. At the time, she was based on Tulagi Island in the Solomon Islands, and while traveling down to PT-109's position aboard Rochambeau, Kennedy witnessed a horrific airstrike that killed the ship's captain. Kennedy found himself helping to hand shells to supply a large gun, and this was his first experience in battle, and quite the harrowing one for the young man. Kennedy took over PT-109, who had already seen much bloodshed at this point and was in dire need of repairs. So Kennedy aided in the effort to make her seaworthy once more. On May 30th of 1943, many PT boats, including PT-109, were ordered to the Russell Islands in preparation for the invasion of New Georgia. After the capture of Rendova Island, PT operations were moved to a crude bush berth on June 16th. Kennedy, along with all the other Navy sailors stationed at Rendova base, were exposed to diseases like malaria, dysentery, and elephantitis, as well as trying to avoid cockroaches, rats, food diseases, ear fungus, and malnutrition from the monotonous rations they were given. Upon returning from this later, Kennedy would suffer from the after-effects of malaria, colitis, and chronic back pain, all caused or aggravated by his time in Rendova base in combat. On August 1st, an attack by 18 Japanese bombers ravaged the base. PT-117 was wrecked but still afloat, and PT-164 sunk, two, portito, two torpedoes being blown off her as she sank. These torpedoes ran wildly around the bay until they ran ashore, thankfully not exploding. We have come to PT-109's final mission, and we must remind you, the details of this mission are graphic and brutal in nature, and viewer discretion is advised. Aside from Lieutenant John F. Kennedy as commanding officer, PT-109s also had 12 other men aboard during her final mission. These 12 men were Leonard J. Tom, George H.R. Barney Ross, Raymond Albert, Charles A. Bucky Harris, William Johnston, Andrew Jackson Kirksey, Johnny McGuire, Edmund Edgar Maurer, Patrick H. Pappy McMahon, Ray L. Starkey, and Gerard E. Zinzer. These 13 men would see unthinkable strategy in August of 1943. PT-109 and 14 other boats were briefed by Commander Thomas G. Warfield on a mission to cut through the reefs known as Ferguson Passage to Blackett Strait in order to block or attack the anticipated enemy destroyers that would pass through on August 1st and 2nd of that year. A skirmish ensued at that point and is referred to as the Battle of Blackett Strait, 
the second skirmish of that name and was the largest use of PT boats in the war. On August 1st, PT-109 and the other 14 PT boats motored from the Rendova base around 6.30 p.m. Split into four divisions, PT-109 was part of the B division that left the base first, leading the pack into the skirmish. Most of the divisions reached their stations by 8.30 p.m., each carrying four torpedo boat tubes for a total of 60 torpedoes among the 15 boats. Of the 24 torpedoes launched during the skirmish, not a single one hit any of the four Japanese destroyers they were aimed at. That is unfortunate. Indeed it is. Also unfortunate, Kennedy's PT-109 was unintentionally left behind by the division's leader, Lieutenant Brantingham of PT-159. Although his PT boat was equipped with radar, many were not, including PT-109. When he advanced on the destroyers arriving on the scene, he did not radio Kennedy, who was left behind consequently. By 2 a.m. on August 2, 1943, Kennedy's PT-109 was left behind and ordered to continue patrolling alongside PT-162 and PT-169. The night was cloudy and moonless, and fog had settled in. PT-109 was idling in the water in order to avoid detection of her wake by Japanese aircraft when the crew suddenly realized they were in the direct path of the Japanese destroyer Amagiri, which was heading north after offloading supplies and 902 soldiers. Kennedy, who had not been radioed of the destroyers approaching, did not have much time to react. According to John F. Kennedy, he attempted to turn PT-109 to fire a torpedo and fired their 37mm anti-tank gun at Amagiri. They loaded a shell into the gun, but did not have time to fire before what happened next. They had less than 10 seconds in order to avoid the destroyer. However, these 10 seconds passed quickly, and Amagiri turned toward PT-109, ramming into the tiny PT boat around 2.27 a.m., cutting the boat in two. The collision was marked by an exploding fireball of aviation fuel, with flames licking the sky at heights of 100 feet. Andrew Jackson Kirksey and Harold William Marney were killed instantly, and two other members of the crew were badly injured in the water that was aflame due to burning fuel on the water's surface. PT-109 broke up, and only the forward hull was afloat due to the watertight compartments keeping it in the fiery ocean. None of the other PT boats were informed on what to do in case of a PT boat sinking or how to search for survivors, so the rest of the divisions returned to base without PT-109, leaving Kennedy and his men stranded. Kennedy was able to rescue Patrick McMahon, a crew member whose body was 70% covered in burns and brought him to the remaining floating piece of the bow to hold on to. Kennedy returned to rescue both Starkey and Harris, bringing them back to the bow with the rest of the survivors. Kennedy remained calm and instructed the remaining 10 men to regroup. They clung to the bow section for 12 hours as they hoped for rescue as they slowly drifted south and the bow section slowly began to fill with water. By 1 p.m. on August 2nd, it was apparent the only remaining portion of PT-109 would soon be sunk, so by 1.30 the men departed to head for land, led by Lieutenant Kennedy. Unfortunately for them, most of the islands in the area, including the closest, Kolumbangara, were Japanese-occupied. The men settled on the nearby deserted Plum Pudding Island, loading lanterns, shoes, and a few other supplies on a piece of timber that had once been a gun mount, and kicked behind it to push it along. McMahon was unable to swim, and so Kennedy held the man's life vest strap in his teeth and towed him along. Wow, lucky that Kennedy was on Harvard's swim team. Yes, it definitely was. 
It took the men four hours to swim 3.5 miles to the island. Luckily, they didn't encounter any sharks or crocodiles, which were known to occupy the waters around the Solomon Islands. Plum Pudding Island was tiny and had no food or water for the men to survive off of, and the exhausted men hid behind the tree line to avoid detection from Japanese barges. On the night of August tw- on August 2nd, Kennedy swam two miles alone to Ferguson Passage to attempt to flag down passing American PT boats. He was unable to find help. On August 4th, Kennedy and the Lenny Tom assisted the injured, hungry, and exhausted crew of PT-109 on a demanding 3.75-mile swim to Olasana Island, Kennedy once again toning McMahon by the strap of his life vest and Kennedy's teeth. When they reached Olasana Island, the men were relieved to find meager sustenance at ripe coconuts, although there was still no fresh water on this island either. On the following day, George Ross accompanied Kennedy on another hour-long swim to nearby Nauru Island, where they encountered a small abandoned canoe that had packages of crackers and candy and a 50-gallon drum of potable water left behind by Japanese soldiers. Kennedy and Ross rowed the canoe with the supplies by to Olasana Island, and Kennedy spoke to two natives on the island, Biku Gasa and Aroni Kumana, in small amounts of pidgin English that these native coast watchers knew. Upon realizing that they were speaking with Americans, the two offered them yams, vegetables, and cigarettes from their own dugout canoe, vowing to help the stranded men. However, it would take two more days for a full rescue to happen. Kennedy famously inscribed a message on the skin of a coconut that was transported along with a penciled message on paper from Lenny Tom to Wanawana Island by Casa and Kumana on a small canoe. It would take them roughly two days to get the message back to Rendova base. In the meantime, they had managed to link up with senior scout Benjamin Kivu, who informed Evans on Kalamangara Island, and he sent a canoe of supplies and instructions for Kennedy to travel to Gomu Island. Kennedy had to lay flat underneath palm fronds in the borrowed canoe to avoid detection from the Japanese for days until rescue came. Upon hearing Kennedy and his crew were in fact alive, PT Commander Warfield was his first skeptical of these men, but was convinced by a radioed message by Evans. PT-157 was dispatched on August 8, 1943, to where Kennedy was waiting on Gamu Island. With Kennedy aboard PT-157, returned to Alasana Island to rescue the weakened crew of PT-109, dispatching rowboats to ferry the men from the island to the PT boat. With everyone on board, PT-157 motored back to Rendova PT base 40 miles away, where everyone began to receive medical attention, including Kennedy, who had lacerations all over his feet from walking over coral reefs barefoot. On board PT-157, reporters eagerly ate up the story of Joseph P. Kennedy Sr.'s son heroically rescuing the men of his crew. Joseph P. Kennedy made sure these articles were circulated heavily, proud to have a hero for a son. Tom, Ross, and Kennedy were all awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal, and Kennedy was rewarded with a Purple Heart for the injuries he sustained. In the aftermath, Tom was assigned as a commander of PT-587 and Kennedy the commander of PT-59 through the end of World War II. The two remained close friends, and when Tom eventually passed in 1946 due to a car accident, John F. Kennedy was one of his pallbearers. John F. Kennedy's brother, Joe Kennedy Jr., who inspired him to join the Navy, would die during his wartime service in 1944.
The coconut shell that Kennedy wrote his rescue message on was retrieved by Ernest W. Gibson Jr., who ended up returning the shell to Kennedy. He had the shell encased in a glass paperweight on his Oval Office desk and is now on display at the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. As we all know, Kennedy was later assassinated on November 22, 1963, but would always be remembered as a war hero as well as a successful president. PT-109 was found by Robert Ballard, the same man who found Titanic, in May of 2002 at a depth of about 1,200 feet during a National Geographic Society expedition. It was discovered first by a torpedo tube matching the description of those on PT-109 and in the area of the wreckage, and later the bow section that had drifted south was identified by Dale Riddler, a weapons and explosives expert on the U.S. Marine Forensics Panel. In accordance with Navy policy, much of PT-109 remains undisturbed. This search and discovery was featured on a National Graphic-produced TV special titled The Search for Kennedy's PT-109 and later on a DVD and book were also released. So Derek, how did PT-109 sinking affect the world? Well, Eleanor, after PT-109 sinking, the usage of PT boats was scaled back significantly. After World War II, PT boat design was changed drastically. PT-109's legacy was immortalized in the 1963 film PT-109, starring Cliff Robertson. Kennedy's father had a role in production, financing, casting, and writing of the film as well, and Plum Pudding Island was later renamed Kennedy Island in honor of John F. Kennedy. Hasbro also released a PT-109 edition G.I. Joe action figure based upon Kennedy in navy khakis with a miniature version of the coconut shell Kennedy inscribed his message on. In the 1960s, during Kennedy's presidency, PT-109 was highly revered and there was even a song released by Jimmy Dean titled PT-109, eventually reaching number 8 on the pop music charts and number 2 on the country music charts. Unfortunately, as many things in history do, PT-109's legacy has faded and it is no longer as remembered as it once was. The goal of this episode is to commemorate the heroic efforts of everyone involved in the rescue of PT-109 to remember those lost in the tragedy and to hopefully keep the legacy of this vessel and its crew alive. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you like this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, Please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. Tune in next Sunday for the story of HMS Victoria, a battleship in the Royal Navy that collided with another ship and sank in 1887. Her wreckage sitting curiously completed vertical. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.